Good morning, everyone. I need whatever coffee Bianca's drinking. Yes. Absolutely. I'd like to start this morning by addressing the rumor that Kenny started last week that I stole all of the carpet out of this building. That is categorically untrue. And uh, I'd prefer you not look in my basement. We, we have an opportunity today to participate in what is a, a holy assembly where the bride of Christ gathers and meets with her husband, where we as children of God gather and meet with our amazing Heavenly Father and have an opportunity to worship Him and spend time with Him. And we're so thankful that God has given us these opportunities to come together as His body and worship Him and be a part of what He has called Our sermon series is called The First Five, and we are looking at a different one of the first five books of the Bible each week. We are looking at the whole book in a single Sunday, and today we come to the fourth book of the Bible, which is a book that has a boring name, unless you are an accountant, it is the book of Numbers, right? And so I'd invite you to turn with me today as we look at the book of Numbers to 1 Corinthians 10. Yeah, that's right. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10 as we uh, look at the book of Numbers today, and all of that will make sense in just a minute. Have you ever been in a situation where you had very high hopes, only to have everything go very, very wrong? Anyone been in that kind of situation? You had very high hopes, and then everything went absolutely haywire, just terrible. I was trying to think of a situation that some of us have shared where that has happened. And my mind went back to January 15th, 2018. January 15th, 2018 was one day after the Minnesota Vikings had defeated a very good New Orleans Saints team in a game that we often refer to as the Minneapolis Miracle. And that week of January 15th was filled with so much hope. Do you remember the kinds of videos that people were posting online after Steph Diggs ran that ball in? People running around their homes like crazy people, hugging strangers in bars. Everyone was so excited. Clearly the Vikings were a team of destiny, and the Minneapolis miracle proved it. We were going to the big show. That that sense of hope and destiny only grew when we realized that our opponent in the NFC Championship game was going to be the Philadelphia Eagles, whose starting quarterback was hurt. And they were starting a journeyman backup named Nick Foles. Certainly the Vikings would beat this journeyman backup and we would be headed to the Super Bowl. Our hopes grew even larger on game day when the Vikings were the team to score first. We were unstoppable. So much hope. Team of destiny. And then everything went horribly wrong. All of that hope turned into horror as the Eagles scored 38 straight points in order to beat the Vikings 38 to 7. Right? Do you remember this? Have you tried to forget? Right. Hope that turned into horror. That, that's the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers starts, up with, starts off with so much hope. The first few chapters of the book of Numbers are filled with hope because the primary problem that Israel had has been overcome. The primary problem that Israel had is that God dwelt among them in a tabernacle, but they weren't able to relate with him in any way. 
They weren't able to be in his presence. And we see that problem at the end of the book of Exodus. The last couple verses of the book of Exodus say, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was the very best that Israel had to offer. But a holy God can't dwell with an unholy people. And he was not able to go into the tent of meeting and be around the glory of God and be in God's presence. And so what was Israel to do? They're an unholy people. A holy God dwells among them and they can't relate to him in any way. Well, then comes the book of Leviticus. Substitutionary sacrifices. Atonement made for sin. Priestly mediaries. And by the beginning of the book of Numbers, that primary problem of not being able to be in God's glory and in his presence has been solved. And in the first book of the verse of Numbers, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. Where was Moses when God spoke to him? In the tent of meeting. He's in the tabernacle as God is speaking to him. That problem that existed in Exodus where we couldn't be in the, in the presence of God. No one could go in and be around his glory. That has been solved. And now Moses is able to go in and be around God and in his presence. There is so much hope at the beginning of the book of Numbers as God's people are able to relate to their God and now they are going to be led into this astounding promised land. As we read the first four chapters of the book of Numbers, it may be that we find it a little bit boring. Anyone? Right. Yeah, indeed. Yes, indeed. Thus the book of Numbers. It is just a count. And this family had this many people, and this tribe had this many people, and this family had this many people. All of those who are headed from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. Not only that, when we get out of the counts, we get into the camping formation. Woohoo! And then from the camping formation, we get into the formation where they're supposed to, that they're supposed to march in. But if we're able to get past some of these counts, we can see that these chapters are dripping with hope. Those counts are all about the numbers of people who are going to set out from Mount Sinai and go to the blessed promised land that God has for his people. That camping formation, it isn't insignificant. What is the arrangement of the camp? Everyone is arranged around God's presence at the center. Is there anything better than living life with God at the very center and at the very center of their community? And how are they instructed to march when they go to the next place? Right? Their moving formation is always with God at the front, leading and guiding every step and every move that they make. There is so much hope bound up in these first 10 chapters where God reveals to his people, I'm bringing you to a promised land. Let's count everybody that's going. We're going to make this three-week journey together. Come on. And when you camp, I'm going to be at the center of life. And when you move, I'm going to lead and guide every step. Is there a better way to live than that? Chapters 5 through 10 identify even some more purity laws that resemble the purity laws of Leviticus in order to help them identify them and identify them as holy as opposed to all of the other people around them. And of course, they're going to keep those purity laws. God himself is with them. So much hope at the beginning of the book of Numbers. And then at the end of chapter 10, the people of Israel set out from Mount Sinai and hope turns into horror. 
The rest of the book of Numbers is a travel journal filled with horrors. Their three-week journey into the promised land becomes 40 years of wandering in the wilderness filled with their sin and God's discipline for their sin. It, it, it is hope that has turned into horror for the rest of the book of Numbers. Now, did you know that the New Testament is very clear for those of us who are followers of Jesus that we are intended to learn from those wilderness wanderings? God says, I, I don't want you ignoring those wilderness wanderings captured in the book of Numbers. I want you as followers of Jesus to pay special attention to those wilderness wanderings and learn from them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 and 6 says this, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. God says, believers in the church, I want you to look at these wilderness wanderings in numbers and learn from them. So, so that no part of their sin enters into your life. Just a couple of verses later in that same chapter. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for what? Written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let everyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The examples of sin and rebellion that we see throughout the book of Numbers, they are meant to be instruction for us. We're to learn from their mistakes. Years and years ago, I went with a group of pastors on a ministry exploration tour in Nicaragua. And we went down there the first night. I sat at a table with a couple of pastors that I was meeting for the first time. And we ordered dinner there in the restaurant at the hotel. I got the chicken. The two pastors seated across from me got the seafood salad. And when it came, I went, oh man, that looks pretty good. I wish I'd gotten the seafood salad. Ah. Until the following morning when we all gathered to go to our first ministry site and those two guys were not present and our leader said they will not be joining us today because they both got very, very ill last night. The following night, we ate at the restaurant, at the hotel, and guess what? I did not order the seafood salad. <laughs> but apparently, one person in her group hadn't heard that tale, and they did order the seafood salad. And they were not with us the following morning. And our leader told us that they would not be joining us on our adventures that day. Over the course of that entire week, you guys, I did not order the seafood salad once. Why? I never got sick from the seafood salad. I didn't order the seafood salad because I have this remarkable superpower to learn from the mistakes of others. No, it's not a superpower at all. We all have that ability, don't we? To learn from the mistakes of others and we're to exercise it regularly. And that's precisely what God calls us to here in the New Testament. He says, look at those wilderness wanderings recorded in Numbers and learn from them so that you don't make the same kind of mistakes that they made. Absolutely learn from them. So what are the kinds of sins that are recorded in the book of Numbers? 1 Corinthians 10 gives us a pretty good list, starting with idolatry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
the people of Israel went astray worshiping other gods. The quote here in 1 Corinthians 10.7 reminds us that when Moses was up receiving the Ten Commandments, what were the people of Israel doing? They were making a golden calf to worship. And we might think, sure, but once they received the Ten Commandments, I bet that did away with all idol worship for the rest of Israel's history. Right? Have you read any of the Old Testament? And Numbers is a reminder to us that no, that did not happen as they fall back into idolatry. As a matter of fact, in Numbers chapter 25, we see the people of Israel for the first time worship a god, an idol called Baal. Worship that would ensnare them for hundreds of years. They worship Baal for the sake of wealth and fertility and ease of life. Now, we don't worship stone images in the same sense that they do. But anything in life that takes God's place as priority in our life, that's an idol. Anything that creeps into our life and takes His place as priority in our motives is an idol. And so as I put a list of the kind of idols that tend to tempt us up on the screen, it's worth us doing a heart check regularly in order to say, is there any way in which these idols are creeping into my heart? and taking a place that only God should have in there. Let me ask you some questions about these things. Has God or accumulation for self been the focus of your possessions? Have you been seeking security in God or through financial accumulation? Is your daily contentment in your relationship with Jesus or are you seeking that from pleasures like food, sex, hobbies, entertainment. Is relationship with God the priority of your time or is it performance and achieving success according to the measures of the world? In the decisions you make, are you primarily motivated by your political affiliations or by the word of God? Is it pleasing God or pleasing people that's driving your decision making? Anything, no matter how good it is, that takes God's place as priority in our life is an idol and has to be rooted out so that we don't make the same mistakes that Israel made in Numbers. They ran after idols, and God says, please learn that lesson and don't do that. But they didn't just run after idols. The next verse says they also committed sexual immorality. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is also a reference to Numbers 25, and the sins of Numbers 25 are summarized in this incredibly uncomfortable verse to read. Verse 1 of Numbers 25 says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Anyone else feel warm? (laughs) So the people of Israel came to this region that shall not be named, and as they were there... The men of Israel began to have sexual relationships with the daughters, with the women of Moab. Friends, the Old Testament, Jesus teaching the New Testament epistles, universally agree that sexual relationship is reserved for a husband and a wife within the marriage relationship. And that any sexual relationship outside of that marriage relationship between a husband and a wife is sin. 
And the men of Israel were committing sin in what they were doing, having sexual relationships with these women of Moab. And God is not pleased. And so he disciplines them, sending a plague upon them that kills thousands of Israelites. Not only that, he says to Moses, I want you to find the leaders who have led my people into this sexual immorality, and I want you to hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And that's what Moses did. Friends, God is holy. And idolatry and sexual immorality are a big deal before him. They are not to be present among God's people. 1 Corinthians 10 says this passage is a warning to us that we would never allow these things to enter in among the people of God. So often it seems like the American church today is hyper-focused on the sexual immorality in the world out there and the terrible ideas about sexuality that the world holds out there. But this passage and so many other passages within the Scripture remind us that our primary focus is to make sure that there is sexual purity within the people of God in here. The Old Testament prophets did not primarily preach to the pagan nations around Israel. They primarily preached to God's people, saying, no, no, you are to be pure. You are to be a holy priesthood, and that's us. Our primary frustration shouldn't be about how terrible the sexual ethics are out there. Our primary frustration should be about any sexual immorality that we find in the bride of Christ, because God wants his bride to be pure. And so that is our, our focus. God is holy. He takes these things very seriously. But Israel's sins went even further than idolatry and sexual immorality as we read through the book of Numbers. And the third sin that 1 Corinthians 10 talks about is testing God. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. We must not put who to the test? Christ to the test, as some of them did. How did they test Christ 1,500 years before Jesus was born? Last week, you remember, was Trinity Sunday. What a, what a wonderful lesson for this time of year, that Jesus is the Son of God, who has always eternally existed and was with Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. And they tested him. They tested God. What, what does it mean to test Christ or test God? Well, for that, we should look at the passage that's being referenced here, Numbers chapter 21. The people of Israel have tried to enter into the promised land, and Edom has said, oh, no, you don't. You're not coming through our land. There's no easement here for you. You're going to have to go someplace else. And so Israel is leaving and trying to find another way in, and they are grumbling about the fact that they were not able to get into the promised land. And in verse 4, we read, From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Okay, we've got to find a different way. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, now you only have to hear that once to recognize the contradiction in what they said, right? There is no food, and we loathe this worthless food. I'm sorry, what? Is there food? Isn't there food? What's going on here? Of course there's food. 
Right? Of course there's food. As we see the people of Israel wander through the wilderness, God provides everything they need as they are wandering. Anytime they need water, he provides it, sometimes miraculously out of rocks for them. When they need food, God gives them all the carbs they could ever want with this miraculous food from heaven called manna. And when they whine enough, God actually gives in and gives them meat to eat in the form of quail, a whole lot of it. Do do they have food and water and everything they need? Yes, absolutely. But, But they don't just want their needs met. What do they want? They want their wants. Okay, God, that's fine. You've met our needs, but we want our wants. And when we reject the provision of God as inadequate and demand our wants be met before we will be satisfied, that is testing God. When we say to God, your provision is not enough. I will not be happy. I will not be content until I have my wants. That is testing God. Is that ever our heart? God has provided everything that we need, but we refuse to be satisfied until we have our wants. God, I know you've given me my daily bread, but I want my fancy bread. Come on! What what, what does that look like? I just put a few things up on the screen. There's far more than this. God gives us friends, and we're discontent that he hasn't given us the right friends, or sometimes the right friend. Do you know what I mean when I say that? I mean, Disney has thoroughly convinced me that I will never be content in life until I find Prince or Princess Charming. And God, you maybe have given me 25 great friends, but I refuse to be happy and content in life until you give me that one friend who I can marry and be with for the rest of my life. God gives us a home and we're discontent about how it isn't as nice as the homes of others. God gives us a church to worship with and we're discontent that it isn't the way that we want to worship. God gives us a job so that we can make a living and we're discontent because we want a different job. When God provides for our needs and we express discontent because we won't be satisfied until he meets our wants and meets them in our time, that is testing God. And God reacts in a very strong way when Israel does this. Did you notice the part in 1 Corinthians 10, 9 about the serpents? Numbers 21, 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. God sent snakes on the plain of Edom in order to discipline his people. Do you notice that God is disciplining them Every time they sin, every time, whether we're talking about idolatry, sexual immorality, whether we're talking about testing God, every time that they sin, God brings painful discipline. Why? Because God wants them to return from the path that is wrong to the path that is right. God wants them to return from selfish, sinful living to connection to him and relationship with him. And so he keeps disciplining them in severe and harsh ways in order to bring them back. And that is what happens in this situation. Verse 7, And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Praise to the Lord that he ta- uh, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And if you know the account, you know that God provided a way for the people to be healed when they were bit by the snakes. 
When they've repented, God provided for them. But friends, the snakes are a reminder to us of how serious it is to test God, to test Christ. Okay, you've provided for this, but I'm not satisfied with your provision. I want my wants, and I won't be happy until I get them. The final sin that the people of Israel indulged in in the wilderness that 1 Corinthians 10 talks about is related to this disconnect, this discomfort that Israel had in the wilderness and how they express themselves about it. It is the sin that perhaps most plagues the American church today of all of the sins listed here. It is the sin of grumbling and complaining. He says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. When did the Israelites grumble in the wilderness? It would be easier to ask, when didn't they grumble in the wilderness, wouldn't it? They leave Mount Sinai in Numbers chapter 10. By the first verses of Numbers chapter 11, they are already grumbling and complaining about the miracle food that God is sending from heaven. God, you've given us this amazing miracle food here in the wilderness, but we want to expand the buffet. We need more flavors here, God. Verse 4 of chapter 11, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Wait, why was it at no cost? Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The people of Israel say, We remember fondly the land of Egypt. Is this not the ultimate grass is always greener scenario? Where we were getting worked to death as slaves, but at least we had some fish. At least we had the kinds of spices that will make your breath stink. Oh, we remember those days so fondly. Right? Are you kidding? And God disciplines them for their grumbling by sending a plague upon the people. Numbers chapter 12, Moses' brother and sister begin to complain and grumble against him. Miriam is in the middle of grumbling against her brother when God brings a skin disease upon her that is with her until she repents. Numbers chapter 14, the people of Israel begin to grumble because a report comes back from the spies who've been in the promised land. And 10 of the 12 spies say, oh boy, we're in over our heads here, friends. There's big armies and fortified cities. I don't know what we're going to do. And the people of Israel begin to grumble about that predicament. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. And so what does God do? He disciplines them by giving them exactly what they wanted. Would that we had died in the wilderness. And God says, okay, this generation will all die in the wilderness. Your kids will enter into the promised land, but you will not enter into the land that I've promised. Numbers chapter 16, a group of Levites led by a man named Korah, They rebel against Moses and Aaron and say, you guys have too much say in all of this. We should have more say. And in the midst of their grumbling and complaining, some sort of earthquake type event happens and the earth opens up and swallows them. And the people of Israel are frustrated with God's discipline upon them and they grumble about God's discipline upon the grumblers and God sends a plague upon Israel because they're grumbling about the discipline about the grumblers good gravy. Now, if you read Numbers 11 through 16, what you're going to find out is 
I haven't even listed all of the times that they grumbled just in those few chapters. And I have to stop here at chapter 16 because I cannot keep going for the sake of time. They are filled with grumbling and complaining. And friends, grumbling and complaining is not unique to Israel. Amen. This is a time for an amen, right? Grumbling and complaining is not unique to Israel. As a matter of fact, we have seen the American church do it more than ever over the last 15 months. We have said again and again, COVID is a test. It will reveal what is within us. And one of the things that it has revealed over the last 15 months is there are at least pockets within the American church. What is within them is grumbling and complaining, just waiting to get out. People have grumbled about the politicians. They've grumbled about decisions that have been made. They have grumbled about businesses and the decisions they've made. They've grumbled about their churches and the decisions they've made. They've grumbled about their neighbors and how they're living. They've grumbled online. They've grumbled on the radio. They've grumbled in personal conversations. Pastors have grumbled from the pulpit. Maybe that's what I'm doing right now. I don't know. Because we don't think of it as serious, grumbling and complaining. But in 1 Corinthians 10, God wants us to understand this is deadly serious. This is so very serious. One, we need to understand grumbling brings judgment. In the Old Testament, God disciplines the people for grumbling by swallowing them into the earth, burning hundreds of them by fire, sending plagues upon them. It's kind of a big deal. And within the New Testament context, James chapter 5, verse 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We cannot read that without thinking of Matthew chapter 12 and Jesus' words that we will be judged for every careless word that escapes our lips. The judge is standing at the door. He does not miss any grumbling or complaining that may proceed from our mouth. He hears it all, no matter how quietly we may say it. No matter how far we may say it from the church building. No matter how many times we may precede our grumbling with phrases like, well, I, I really like this person, but... Or, I don't mean any offense, but... The judge still hears all of that grumbling and complaining. And he disciplines his people when he catches it upon their lips. Second, we need to understand a lack of grumbling is what sets God's people apart from those who aren't God's people. Part of the problem with what Israel was doing is that it was making them just like all of the nations around them. All of those pagan nations were filled with grumbling and complaining. Of course they were. Because they don't have relationship with the living God. They were made for that. They don't have it. Of course life is going to be filled with grumbling and complaining. When you don't have the one thing that brings fulfillment in life. When you have no hope for a future beyond death, of course life's going to be filled with grumbling and complaining. But the people of Israel had relationship with the living God and the contentment that comes from that. And so God says, you're to be totally different than all of those other people. The same is true with us. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. God says, you live within a crooked and twisted generation. 
but you can shine like lights in the darkness. And do you know what will allow you to do that? Being a people who never grumble and complain. That is what will set you apart from that twisted and crooked generation. That is what will allow you to shine like lights in the midst of this dark world, is being a people free from grumbling and complaining. Why why would we grumble and complain? We're filled with the contentment that comes only from relationship with our Maker. We have hope that our home is not here on this earth. Do, Do things always go the way we want on this earth? No, but why would we grumble and complain about it? This isn't our home anyway. We got a perfect home someplace else. We don't need to grumble and complain when things don't go our way here. This isn't even our residence. We are to learn from the Israelites and never be a people who allow grumbling and complaining to creep into our lives or into our Christian community. Now, as, as we read through the book of Numbers, and as we look at the categories of sins from Numbers listed here in 1 Corinthians 10, it is distinctly possible that there are people in here who are saying, I think I'm wandering in the wilderness. As I look at this list of sins, what I see as I look at my life over the last few weeks and months is a lot of grumbling coming from my lips. I see a lot of other motives other than God that are driving my days. I see a lot of discontent with the needs he's provided, and I just have this desperation for my wants. I can see how sexual immorality has crept into my life. I'm wandering in the wilderness here. And if you're here this morning and you're wandering in the wilderness, there's two things that I want to say to you. And they both come from the same book of 1 Corinthians. The first is this. No matter what you have done, no matter how much wandering you have been doing, you can be totally forgiven by the work of Jesus. No matter what sins you have committed, no matter how long you have been wandering, today if you come and you bow before the King of Kings and you confess your sins before Him, you can be forgiven by Jesus Christ and His work. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All of the sins imaginable were present in the city of Corinth, just as they were present in the people of Israel's wilderness wanderings. And God says, if you continue on in those lives of sin, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. But salvation is possible through Jesus. And for those who place their faith in him, they can be what? Washed washed clean of all of their sins, washed cleaner than these lame white pants I've got on this morning, totally and completely washed. They can be justified. What does that mean? Declared righteous in the courtroom of God, not because of their own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus that has been given to them. Sanctified, what does that mean? Growing in righteousness within this life 
made right more and more day by day by the work of God's Holy Spirit in us. No matter what you have done, no matter what sin you have committed, no matter how long you have been wandering in the wilderness, you can be forgiven today if you place your faith in Jesus and confess your sins to him. Once that happens, a second truth is evident. You can have victory by the power of Jesus over whatever sins and wilderness wanderings you've been battling. We've been looking at the book of Numbers through a few verses in 1 Corinthians 10. We've looked at verses 5 through 12. Verse 13 that comes immediately after that may be a familiar verse to some of you, but this may be the first time you've read it within the context of these wilderness wanderings. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It may very well be that God knows as you are reading about the wilderness wanderings that you'll be tempted to say, what hope is there? If the people of Israel fell into sin after sin after sin while God was living in their presence, what hope is there for me? As you look at your own life, you may say, I have sinned in this area over and over and over and over. Isn't it just a foredrawn conclusion that I'm going to sin in that area tomorrow? I I keep losing that battle. I bet I'll just lose it again tomorrow. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 is meant to battle against that. To tell you no, because of the work of Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit that dwells within you, you don't have to lose that battle tomorrow. No matter how many times you've lost it in the past, Tomorrow can be a different story. No matter what kind of temptation you've given into over and over and over again, if it comes to you this afternoon, you don't have to give in because greater is he who is in you than the one who brings the temptation against you. You can have power over that temptation because of the victory of Jesus Christ. Now, the key to living in that power is intimacy in our relationship with God. As John 15 says, abiding in the vine is what brings fruit in life. And so if we want to have this kind of victory, it only comes about in our life through deepened relationship with God. One of the primary ways we do that is through prayer. If we want to be a people who experience more and more victory in these battles in our life, we have to be a people of prayer, drawing close to Him, more intimate with Him through our prayer lives. One of the things that Jesus has given us to pray about when he modeled how we are to pray every day is about the temptations we know we're going to face, isn't it? What does the last petition of the Lord's Prayer say? Right, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. One way that Jesus intends for us to be praying every day of our lives is to go to battle with the power of the Spirit of God against the temptations we know we're going to face that day. We know we're going to face them because they're constant battles in our life. We faced them yesterday. And we faced them last week, and we faced them the month before that. You know what those constant temptations are, what Hebrews refers to as those sins that so easily entangle. You know what those are in your life. And God's intention is that we would battle them each and every day in prayer and draw close to Him in that battle. But we only have the ability to be forgiven and to overcome sin and live in victory because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. There is nothing in me that can produce that. It's only in him that we can have that victory. 
And we celebrate that when we come to the Lord's Supper together. The forgiveness of Jesus and the power that we have to overcome sin. We sang the song, Waymaker, before I came up here. What is the primary way that God is our waymaker? He's our waymaker in, in that he is the one who has made the way of forgiveness for us so that we don't have to be condemned in our sins. He is our waymaker in that he is the one who has provided the power of the Spirit so that we don't have to give in to those sins anymore. Those are the primary ways that he is our waymaker, and we celebrate that at the table this morning. And so I want to invite all of you who are followers of Jesus Christ to take out this packet that you have and open the bread on one side of this packet. And friends, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we want you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us this morning. We want you to spend time remembering Jesus with us and what he has done. And so we take this bread acknowledging that it represents the body of Christ that was given for us so that we might be forgiven and live new lives. Would you eat this now in remembrance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And now would you open the cup on the other side carefully if you're wearing white pants. The cup represents Jesus' shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. As we read this passage, all of us recognize times in our lives where we have been wandering in the wilderness. And Jesus has gone to the cross for us so that we might be forgiven. And so I invite you now to drink this all in remembrance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and as I do, I'd invite you to stand with me because we are going to continue to worship our Savior in song. Father, what a tremendous blessing it is that you sent your Son so that we might be forgiven. We thank you for your great work in our lives and pray for your Spirit to continue to overpower temptation in us. God, let us be a people who continue to be diligent, never giving in to these sins of the wilderness wandering, but seeking to be a holy people in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.